If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1485, Henry Tudor defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth, and he subsequently came to the throne as Henry VII. This is often said to mark the end of the Wars of the Roses, which had torn England apart for decades. Yet, as Nathan Amin explores in his new book, Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, in the following years the kingdom was far from settled, as Henry faced a succession of conspiracies that aimed to break his tenuous grip on the crown. Our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans, spoke to Nathan to find out more. Uh, Thanks so much, Nathan, for joining us today. Uh, No problems. Thank you for having me. Uh, and it's great to be speaking with you. And and your book, Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, um, explores three of, of the challenges uh, to, towards Henry VII's reign. Um, so pretenders who challenged for the crown or perhaps were presented as challenging for the crown. Um, but before we dive into those figures in your book, I wondered if we could start by talking about the pretend nature of Henry himself, um, because the Tudor dynasty is just so prevalent now and such a, a name enshrined in, in history and certainly popular history, it would be great to really um, remind listeners just how unlikely it was that Henry um, should have even got near the crown. Yes, certainly. I think Henry Tudor, Henry VII, was by far the unlikeliest man to ever sit on the English throne. Uh, nobody during the majority of his lifetime before he came to the throne would ever have thought that this minor Welsh noble would ever become king. Um, He certainly beat the odds to become king. He did it pretty much on the back of his own character, um, of his own determination, and a massive stroke of luck. I mean, Henry Tudor was ultimately the right man in the right place at the right time, of the right age, and crucially unmarried. Um, When in 1483... A group of Yorkist dissidents were, you know, looking around the kingdom and abroad trying to find somebody, anybody really, who could stand against Richard III. And the man that they um, ultimately fixated on was Henry Tudor. Um, It's interesting that when we consider the term pretender, most people take that to assume uh, an imposter, you know, a fraud. But the, the term pretender can be defined as someone who claims or aspires to a title or position that someone else has. And that was precisely what Henry Tudor was between 1483 and his victory at Bosworth Field in 1485. He was the original pretender of this period. Um, And unlike the pretenders that actually would face him during his reign, he was actually successful. Um. I think it's important that we do um, clarify that Henry Tudor did have a claim to the English throne. It did exist, it was real, and it was legitimate. However, of course, by this period, 
um, in question, the mid to late 15th century, it wasn't anything special. I mean, Edward the Edward III had an astonishing amount of descendants living during this period. Hence, at the end of the day, why we had the Wars of the Roses. So Henry Tudor was nothing special, but he did have a claim, and I think he certainly made the most of it. Right, and, and you just mentioned it there, this this um, very brutal conflict that at, at the time of Henry's um, accession, it, you know, it's, it's ripping the country apart. And, and it's it's two sides, to be very basic about it, two sides, York, York and Lancaster. Is it fair to say that even though Henry's claim wasn't the strongest, it was the strongest Lancastrian claim, or is that still disputed? I think, yes, I think we can accept that it was probably the strongest Lancastrian claim around in 1483, as the House of Lancaster was ultimately destroyed throughout the the various phases of the Wars of the Roses. Uh, most people will know that Henry VI and his heir, Prince Edward, were killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471. Uh, Henry VI's Beaufort cousins in the male line were completely destroyed at the same battle, hence why Henry Tudor was considered the Beaufort heir through his mother's line, Margaret Beauford. Um, certainly as a child, Henry Tudor was not the leading Lancastrian heir. That mantle would have been for Henry Holland, the Duke of Exeter, um, which also helps us put to bed this modern accusation against Margaret Beauford that she always had this lifelong dream to see her son on the throne, because quite frankly, before 1475, Henry Tudor was not even the leading Lancastrian claimant. That was Henry Holland. Now, Henry Holland seems to have mysteriously drowned um, coming back from France on a ship with Edward IV. And, of course, the suggestion there is that Edward IV may have done away with this rival Lancastrian claimant. Um, there's definitely evidence. We know that Edward IV was keen to, in the words of one chronicler, crush the seed crushed the Lancastrian seed. The only person by 1483 or the 1480s that was left was Henry Tudor. There were other people in the kingdom who did have Lancastrian royal blood, one being the Duke of Buckingham, who would later rebel against Richard III. Many people consider the Duke of Buckingham to have rebelled against Richard III in favour of Henry Tudor. I don't believe that myself. I think the Duke of Buckingham was going for the throne himself using this Lancastrian blood that he did have. I mean, when you're the number two man in the country, you don't rebel to put somebody else on the throne. You only try and go for the number one spot. So yes, I think Henry Tudor did have the best Lancastrian claim or the most recognised Lancastrian claim by 1483, 1484. But that's because everybody else had perished along the way. Perished along the way, right, mysteriously or otherwise. And there are plenty of mysterious deaths in this account, twists and turns. But I'm interested to hear you say that there of um, someone just going for the number one spot and essentially whatever his claim, this is this is what Henry did, wasn't it? He just went he just went for the number one spot. And I think you've written he he was he became king because he was the king. Um, but this led to uh, you know the, the the politics and the factions that develop after and during this period. Um, can you take us into the instability that still is plaguing his rule, especially in the early days? There's a fantastic quote about Henry Tudor just after he became king by a foreign chronicler called Philip de Comines. And this commentator 
simply claimed that Henry Tudor was a man without power, without money, and without right to the crown of England, and without any reputation but what his person and deportment obtained for him. And ultimately what that chronicler is suggesting is that Henry Tudor became king just of sheer personality, of sheer character. So, of course, when you have somebody come to the throne um, like that, then there's going to be other people who are going to see an opportunity um, to, to do away with him. We're living in a period here where kings have been deposed repeatedly across the previous century. Um, I think five kings in total were deposed during the 15th century. Well, if we include 1399, and that includes Henry VI twice. So by 1485, the, the the idea that kings can be booted off the throne seems to be very prevalent in England. So I don't think anyone would have expected Henry Tudor to last. I think he was put forward by a group of Yorkist dissidents who thought they could perhaps, you know, lean on him and get what they wanted. I don't think they realised who they were dealing with. So Henry's come to the throne. He's very unstable on the throne. Um, he doesn't come with a great claim. He doesn't come with anything near unanimous support. Um, you know, I see I see the Battle of Bosworth as Richard's downfall more than Henry's victory. And of course, there. It's a situation where many men with ambitions would have felt that they could really make something for themselves in what is effectively a power vacuum, and that's exactly what happened. You know, uh, there were various outbreaks of violence during the early Tudor reign. There was certainly a small group of agitators who were looking to and depose the new Tudor king. And that's ultimately what led to the to the appearance on the scene of the first pretender, Lambert Simnel. Okay, so can we talk then uh, about Simnel? Um, how, how, what was this culture that allowed a pretender to be presented in this way? As Well, we'll go into the, the various names and aliases that might or might not have been around uh, Simnel, but can you take us into this culture of dissent and of intrigue that allowed these pretenders to rise? When Henry Tudor became king, he aspired to be a unifying candidate. You know, that was the entire concept behind his rise. Um, the idea of a union of the roses that would end the wars. And this was not a fanciful creation of later writers such as William Shakespeare. I mean, Henry's core support was, after all, the Yorkist supporters of Edward IV. We always put forward Henry Tudor as being, you know, the Lancastrian claimant, but the fact is that most of his support were Yorkists. They were just Yorkists who were loyal to Edward IV and they did not accept Richard III's controversial rise to the throne. So they decided to defect and support Henry Tudor. So Henry Tudor did aspire to be the candidate that would heal a divided country. But of course, there was bound to be at least some resistance to this. Now, in 1486, when Henry Tudor had been on the throne for just uh, under a year, a small conspiracy was uncovered in the West Country. 
And this is led by a handful of men who were known to have been loyal to Richard III. These were men who had lost all of their positions of influence when Richard III had been killed. And unlike many of their compatriots and colleagues, they decided not to be reconciled to Henry Tudor. And these include two brothers, the Staffords, uh, and Abbot called John Sant and Francis Lovell, um, very famously Richard III's closest friend and ally. Now, during 1486, they were, you know, manoeuvring around the West Country, trying to provoke resistance to Henry. And they even started proclaiming the name Warwick in public. Now, this was a reference to a Yorkish prince who still lived during the early Tudor reign, the Earl of Warwick, the son of George, Duke of Clarence, and a nephew of Edward IV and Richard III. This was a prince who was undoubtedly recognised as someone with a, a proud Yorkist lineage and a claim to the throne, a claim we can consider far greater than what Henry Tudor had. But he was locked up in the Tower of London. You know, Henry Tudor, Henry VII, clearly recognised Warwick's potential as a pretender, as somebody who could replace him on the throne, and kept him locked up in the Tower. So now we have this small conspiracy going around the West Country, proclaiming the name Warwick, Warwick, um, trying to galvanise some support. In May 1486, a group of the royal household officers were even attacked in North London by a mob um, armed with rakes. And this mob were waving a ragged staff banner, a, a heraldic device that was associated with the Earls of Warwick. So we have these small pockets of violence taking place in 1486, where they seem to be holding up the Earl of Warwick as, um, you know, as the figurehead of a rebellious movement against Henry Tudor. Yorkist diehards knew that there was a prince of, of Yorkist blood still breathing. But of course, because Warwick was in the tower, he couldn't be used to front any rebellion. And this is why I believe that an imposter was found later that year to actually front this rebellion to gather support. And that is the boy history remembers as Lambert Simnel. He didn't come out of anywhere. Uh, he didn't. He didn't arrive, you know, from from the shadows. He was created. He was picked to front a rebellion, and it worked. Within months, there was a, a large scale movement and an army ready to invade England. And I believe it is that 1486 um, conspiracy that is the key to uncovering what and who exactly Lambert Simnel was. Okay, so um, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, and before we go uh, any further into that movement, I just wanted to pick on some, up on something that I found really interesting in your book is the name Lambert Simnel, which you, you quite rightly say, you know, it sounds very fantastical. It sounds made up, you know, frankly. And it, what 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 can you say about, about what's known about that name and where, where that might come from? I mean, just like most people who will read the book or who already know the story, when you when you first come across the name Lambert Simnel, yeah, it has an air of eccentricity, you know, to the modern year. It sounds sounds wonderful. It sounds made up. Lambert Simnel. I mean, how many Lamberts or Simnels do we know today? But 
when you look into the evidence and when you look through the records, you can start to see that Lambert as a given name was in use in England throughout the 15th century. The Abbot of Croyland Abbey in 1484, for example, was Lambert Fosdyke. Um, if you look to the chancery rules, there's various references to men like Lambert Brancaster, Lambert Saltner, Lambert Peavy, Lambert Lee. It's a name in use. Um, Simnel is perhaps a bit more difficult to pinpoint, but it still exists. In 1486, there's a Roger Simnel of Kent. 1417, a Roger Simnel of Lincoln. You know, perhaps these were men who were related to our young Lambert. Most pertinently, in Oxford, in 1479, there is the existence of a Thomas Simnel. Now, later, after Lambert Simnel was captured and taken into Tudor custody, his father was identified as Thomas Simnel of Oxford. Oxford itself is particularly important because those men that I mentioned earlier, the the figures who were leading the rebellion against Henry Tudor, they were all based around Oxford. Um, John Sant, the Abbot, was connected with Abington, as were the Stafford brothers. Um, Francis Lovell was connected with Minster Lovell, which is in Oxfordshire. So when I take all of that evidence together, the fact that Lambert and Simnel are names in existence, there's a Thomas Simnel living in Oxford during this time. The chief conspirators of this period have Oxfordshire connections. I think the evidence does start to come together. Um, granted, it is, uh, you know, it's not solid, it's speculation, but I think it's it's enough to start to make the argument that Lambert Simnel was a real person, a real child, that was a real name. He did have a real father called Thomas Simnel, and he was just selected due to his age by some other Oxfordshire plotters. I mean, surely if the authorities were to make up a name for a boy, why not pick something instantly more forgetful than a name we still remember 500 years? You know, Lambert Simnel, it's not a name that would have been overlooked in history. So we've got this 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 boy, um, Lambert Simnel, as we know him today. He is um, used, uh, we assume now, as this, this kind of puppet, pretender. Um, how does this movement behind him develop and what does this mean for a challenge to Henry's crown? They seem to, I mean, if this conspiracy came together in Oxfordshire, as I believe it did, they seem to have moved very quickly across the Irish Sea to Ireland. And it seems quite obvious why they did this. The real Earl of Warwick, his father, George Duke of Clarence, was born in Dublin. The House of York always had great support in Ireland. So what they've done is they've taken this imposter across to Ireland, which is staunchly Yorkist, and they've presented him to the people. Obviously, they haven't gone, this is Lambert Simnel pretending to be the Earl of Warwick. They've gone, this is the Earl of Warwick. You know, in those days, the Irish were none the wiser. They perhaps weren't fully aware that the real Earl of Warwick was in the Tower of London. When Henry Tudor, Henry VII, became aware of this, he actually had the real Earl of Warwick paraded through London. So Londoners were very aware, you know, wait a minute, this is the real Earl of Warwick. This boy in Ireland is clearly some fake. The Irish weren't 
perhaps as clued in as this. So they've just been presented with the Earl of Warwick and suddenly an army has started to develop. Now, during this time, the most the most important development was the defection from Henry's side of John de la Poole, the Earl of Lincoln. Now, the Earl of Lincoln, another man with Oxfordshire connections, um, as the family seat was in Oxfordshire, was another nephew of Richard III and another potential Yorkist prince. Now, he has defected to the rebels, and he's the man who's now, to all intents and purposes, leading this conspiracy. We can speculate why he did this. I mean, if a genuine Yorkist prince has defected to the side of an imposter, then surely that suggests that the imposter is not, in fact, a fraud. Because what type of prince is going to defect for a fraud? I would speculate back against that, that I think Lincoln was playing or attempting to play a shrewd game. I think he was going to use this imposter to build this army to invade using the great Warwick support base and then perhaps either take the crown himself or more likely then remove the real Warwick from the tower to be a a puppet, a puppet king for all we know. I mean, I don't know where that would have left the imposter boy, but I mean, these were ruthless, ruthless times. I'm sure the boy would have been perhaps quietly dispatched. But nonetheless, in the summer of 1387, uh, sorry, 1487, we have an army being built, uh, being amassed in Dublin. And that army ultimately invades Northern England and tries to galvanise the support, the old Ricardian Richard III support in Yorkshire to try and swell its numbers. It works to a limited extent, but they do not get anywhere near the support I think they were expecting. The vast majority of the country, the most of the nobles, the gentry, they rally for the Tudor cause. Um, they, they stay loyal to the king. And ultimately, both sides do clash and meet at Stokefield in Nottinghamshire, where the Royal Army is, unlike at Bosworth two years earlier, the Royal Army is victorious. Right. Uh, and you just mentioned that these these times are very brutal times. What happens to, to Simnel? And, and more broadly, how can the cha- the challenges and the way in which Henry dealt with the challenges to this power be, be characterised? How did he react to this type of challenge? Henry reacts swiftly. Um, we've got to remember that Henry came to the throne just two years earlier and he saw what happened to Richard III. He was now in Richard's position, being faced with an invasion from abroad by a pretender with a a smaller army and one partly filled with mercenaries. But nonetheless, he knew that underdogs could win battles and depose kings. So he responded swiftly. He moved to the centre of his kingdom at Kenilworth. And once he had learned that the rebels had landed in Northern England, he mobilised his army and he moved towards them. He was not hiding. You know, Henry had won his crown at great cost two years earlier and he was not going to take a back seat. He was going to fight to keep this crown. So he took his army and he headed straight towards the invasion. And ultimately, as I said, both sides met in the middle uh, in Nottinghamshire. Now, Henry did succeed in attracting most of his nobility. I mean, the only... 
significant affection was Lincoln. The rest of his nobility turned out for him. And, you know, it, it was a battle. Battles can turn on the smallest of margins, but the royal victory was assured. It's quite interesting when we look at Henry's reaction, how much attention he paid to the city of York. Uh, the city of York was notoriously partisan to Richard III. Um, they expressed their they expressed their dissatisfaction at the Tudor victory two years earlier. So Henry wanted to make sure that this city, the second greatest city in his kingdom, did not fall to the rebels. So he spent a considerable amount of money and time in making sure the York's defences and the people in charge of York were up to the task of protecting his crown. And when the rebels appeared outside the city of York and they demanded to be let in in the name of the Earl of Warwick, the great York, York Yorkist pretender, the city held firm. The city stayed loyal to Henry Tudor. And I don't think this is something that's talked about enough. Um, I currently live in York and the you know York is always held up as this great bastion of support for the House of York and for Richard III. And yet just two years later, the city stayed loyal to Henry Tudor. You know, what does that tell us about how the country had bought in to the concept of Henry Tudor as king, of Henry Tudor as the unifying candidate? This was the perfect moment to really explode the country once more. And York didn't take it, and I don't think England took took to it either. You know, the rebels were defeated, they were put down, and that was that. As for Lambert Simnel, he was taken into custody after the battle, and Henry did not kill him, he did not put him to death. You know, despite what probably happened to the princes of the tower uh, four years earlier, you don't really kill children during this period. It's not the done thing. And I think the fact that Henry did keep him alive and actually put him to work in the royal kitchens is another clear suggestion that everybody knew this boy was an imposter. If the boy had true royal blood or was even... Um, suspected of having royal blood, he would have been put in the tower with the real Earl of Warwick. Um, you know, you don't let potential pretenders just wander across your kingdom. Two decades after he was crowned a king in Dublin, Lambert Simnel was still alive, and he had even been promoted to train the king's hawks. Uh, the last reference you have to Lambert Simnel, in fact, is deep into the reign of Henry VIII. Um, I think the last reference is 1524. So Lambert Simnel outlived Henry Tudor by 15 years. You know, I wonder what, I wonder what, you know, a 50-year-old Lambert Simnel would have made of the exploits he experienced as a child. But alas, we do not have any records or surviving letters to to get a glimpse into his mind. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... I do like that the the chronicles suggest that the reason that Henry granted Elizabeth of York a coronation in November 1487, so just over two years after he came to the throne, uh, he did it for the perfect love and sincere affection for his wife. Um, I don't doubt that that was true to an extent. The records are clear on the love that did gradually build up between the pair. 
But this was a political move to try and suppress any future Yorkist rebellions. So I'm interested to hear more really about Henry's attempts to unify or at least to present himself as this unifying force. As you talked about how York stayed steady for him um, in that encounter in Stokefield, what happens next for Henry? What's the next steps for him in terms of unity? Henry had already been married at this point. He married Elizabeth of York um, five months into his reign, which itself is quite interesting because an accusation always levelled against Henry was that after promising that he would marry Elizabeth of York. When he came to the throne, he waited and he delayed. This is not true. Henry needed he needed to make sure that any children he had with Elizabeth of York were legitimate. So he waited to get a papal dispensation to ensure that this marriage was legally above board because Henry and Elizabeth were related. They were related within the prohibited degrees of the church. Henry Tudor and Elizabeth received the papal dispensation on the 16th of January 1486. There was a papal legate in London and he granted them permission to marry. They married two days later. Far from delaying the marriage to Elizabeth of York, Henry could not have rushed it anymore. You know, he married it two days after he got the papal dispensation. What he didn't do but he didn't crown Elizabeth. Now, the following year, we get this Lambert-Simnock conspiracy. We understand there are now some Yorkist dissidents in the country. It's certainly still a very small number, but, you know, enough to perhaps just, you want to nip her in the bud. You don't want to let this issue fester. So the battle and the conspiracy happened in the summer of 1487. A parliamentary act was passed at the end of that year, which decried all of those who had sought the death and destruction of the king. That said, only a small number of people were actually attainted by parliament, most of which were already dead by this point. Um, and Henry was showing significant restraint, as he did after the Battle of Bosworth. He was not going after his enemies and he was not massacring them. You know, he was not using a ruthless hand to take out um, any opponents. It was a moderate policy and it proved astute. Because, you know, he he couldn't be excessively lenient to, you know, perhaps encourage other people to rise against him. But equally, nobody's going to respect and love and support a king who just did um, the kind of behaviour, in fact, that his son would later do. But what he did do to try and, again, foster this concept of unity in the realm was he granted his wife a coronation. It seems to have been a very obvious error of his not to have crowned her earlier. Now, I do like that the... The chronicles suggest that the reason that Henry granted Elizabeth of York a coronation in November 1487, so just over two years after he came to the throne, uh, he did it for the perfect love and sincere affection for his wife. 
Um, I don't doubt that I was true to an extent. The records are clear on the love that did gradually build up between the pair. But this was a political move to try and suppress any future Yorkist rebellions. Um, a convenient opportunity, really, for Henry to very publicly reassert his regime's authority. Because there had been two failed rebellions now within a year. Henry needed to remind his subjects, whether they were loyal or otherwise, just who was on the throne. The coronation, we have great detail of what occurred. Um, little expense was spared by the king. He included, you know, ostentatious water pageants which spanned the breadth of the Thames. Uh, it was a remarkable spectacle. When the Queen arrived at the Tower of London the day before her coronation, we are told that she was met by her husband at the gate um, off the Thames in such manner and form uh, that it proved a very good sight and joyous for all to behold. You know, the King was clearly welcoming her with a loving embrace. She was crowned the next morning in Westminster Abbey and what is very significant during her coronation is that the white rose of the House of York and the sun in splendour badge of her father, Edward IV, were littered throughout Westminster. Um, you know, these were Yorkist symbols and Henry was clearly trying to generate support for his own line through his beloved wife. Londoners were known for their great affection for the House of York. You know, again, Henry Tudor is not suppressing the House of York here, as is often an accusation levelled at him. He's using the House of York to bolster his own line because he's the unity candidate. And it was a wedding which one chronicle claimed rejoiced many an Englishman's heart because this was a coronation that once again, after a difficult year, was showing that England was, hopefully, for the future, united. Henry knew what he was doing. Right. It sounds like a, a remarkable occasion. And as you say, um, a real kind of uh, propaganda striker at this show of unity. Um, though, uh, uh, without giving anything away, Lambert's hymnal is not the only pretender that you write about. There's there's another couple still to come. And, and without giving too much away, as it's all in, in your book, um, do you want to introduce the, the what 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 else you're you're covering? Uh, yes, Lambert Simnel is essentially the first half of the book. Um, the second half of the book is focused on Perkin Warbeck, who was the second pretender who surfaced about four years after Lambert Simnel. You know, the, these dissidents they didn't they didn't give up. They clung on to the hope that one day there would be somebody to remove this Tudor usurper from the throne. And Perkin Warbeck was the next pretender. So in the book, I cover his rise to, to prominence. It's a, certainly a different type of rebellion compared to Lambert Simnels. Lambert Simnels happened very quickly. He appeared, he got an army. I say he got an army. People got an army in his name, invaded, and got defeated in battle. S Perkin Warbeck's simmered for nearly a decade and it was very much a continental affair. Uh, Warbeck first appears in France, and there's a strong suggestion that he was, as one Irishman of the day called him, just a French lad um, who was put forward by the French to unsettle England because the French were at war with England at the time. He moved to Ireland to try to get 
support in Ireland, which had previously given support to Lambert Simnel, failed to find support there, moved back to France, failed to get support there, went to Burgundy where he did get support for a number of years, and then on to Scotland and Cornwall. Perkin Warbeck existed in countries that existed in a state of war with England at the time. And when they were reconciled to England, he moved on. You know, he never he never at any point established his own core support in England. Um, there were certainly small conspiracies taking place, but again, the majority of the kingdom was not willing to return to widespread war. Now, throughout the book itself, there's a third pretender for me, you know, the real pretender, if you want, and that's the Earl of Warwick. He spends the majority of Henry Tudor's reign in prison in the Tower of London, but Simnel and Warbeck conspiracies aside, underneath everything that's occurring during this period is the consistent levels of support for Warwick because he was a genuine Yorkist prince. And Simnel's appearance, Warbeck's appearance, and yet another pretender called Ralph Wolford, who appeared for just two weeks, ultimately cost the Earl of Warwick his head. Um, through no fault of his own, a true innocent of the Tudor reign, the Earl of Warwick ultimately fell because of all of these conspiracies that were occurring, if not directly, and certainly indirectly, in his name. But a fascinating period. Yeah, nonetheless. absolutely. And well, um, I wanted to ask about your research actually on the period. I mean, it, it is absolutely fascinating. Um, but I wonder, it, it's... I wonder if you get that frustration because there are so many fascinating elements and then so many unknowns as well. Um, out of all of these mysteries that this period throws up, what what would you kind of most love to know for sure uh, of any of these pretenders or any of the the history around them? I mean, I'm fairly confident that the pretenders were imposters. Um, Perkin Warbeck, I'm comfortable saying, I believe that he was an imposter and he wasn't one of the princes in the tower. I don't know for definite, of course. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what happened to the princes in the tower, whether they were killed, who killed them, or even if they actually survived, um, which is a recent theory that's starting to gain a bit of momentum. So I suppose what I would really love to know is what happened to the princes in the tower. I mean, a recent the recent BBC history magazine had it named as the greatest mystery in history. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there who would want to know what happened. Um, so I think it all comes down to that. I mean, the entire... I mean, the premise of my book does not stand on what happened to the princes because it's ultimately dealing with what actually happened during the reign of Henry VII. You know, it doesn't massively matter whether Perkin Warbeck was a prince in the tower or not because it's dealing with the invasions, the repeated invasions of Perkin Warbeck, how Henry Tudor reacted to these invasions. Now, he's dealing with things that actually happened. But just to satisfy my own curiosity and everyone's curiosity, I think we all need to know what happened to the princes. Um, alas, I don't think we ever will. 
No, it's it's a such a fascinating mystery, and I should mention I'd be remiss not uh, to mention here the podcast series we produced last year, which you joined us for as well, uh, an eight part series which is available uh, on on your podcast feed. It's available all eight episodes now, or if you go to historyextra.com and, and search for Princess in the Tower, you'll find it there too. Um, so hopefully, I know you just said Nathan, it might never be solved, but hopefully it might give you a little bit more information. Probably might leave you with a few more questions. Who knows? So these are uh, the, as you just mentioned, this this book, you know, it's not full of unknowns. It covers Henry's reign. It covers how he dealt with these challenges to his power um, and, you know, his own status as a pretender and how how uh, inst- unstable and, and that how that affected his reign himself. Um, yet, is it fair to say that this, this tenuous nature, the in- instability of his reign might it's quite often overlooked in popular history um, and it's the strength of his legacy and that Tudor dynasty that people do remember. So wh- why do you think that's taken hold so much? Was that all his propaganda or what's happened there? I think the phrase Tudor propaganda is often a bit of an issue. Sorry. Um, it's, often, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, often just, it's often just used to almost excuse or justify um, theories pro or against Henry. I don't think Henry himself was ever in charge or, um, you know, fermented a a propaganda machine, per se. At the end of the day, Henry Tudor was, without doubt, the unlikeliest figure ever to sit on the English throne. Uh, no one ever foresaw that he would wear a crown. When he did become king, he's inherited something of a poison chalice, um, as I briefly mentioned earlier, between 1399 and 1485, uh, no fewer than five kings had been deposed um, twice, if we're counting Henry VI. For this reason, for him to be seen as the man who ended the wars was vital for Henry in retaining his grip on the kingdom. You know, many bought into the concept of unity and peace. And this is definitely something that was furthered by the writers of the reign. I don't think there was a concerted program of propaganda being pumped out as many perhaps today um, feel happened. Uh, because if anything, Henry Tudor actually kept quiet on a lot of the controversies. You know, Henry Tudor never came out and said, This is what happened to the princes in the tower, for example. You know, it was a program of keeping quiet and just moving on and letting the very fact that he had become king as a unifying figure with his marriage to Elizabeth of York, he just let that fact um, seep out into the kingdom. And again, it does seem to have worked. I do believe that Henry did truly end the Wars of the Roses um, and he does deserve this achievement. But as perhaps we now acknowledge him coming to the throne at the beginning of the reign was not in itself something that ended the wars. I believe the Wars of the Roses ended with his death. You know, his lasting legacy was unquestionably the the bequeathing of power to his 17-year-old son, Henry VIII, um, armed with the restoration of royal power, a replenished treasury, and really the rehabilitation of England's continental reputation. I think moving on to future Tudor monarchs, both Henry VIII and Elizabeth I 
ultimately suffered with succession issues. It was hardly politically savvy for people during their reigns to be reminded just how unstable the first Tudor king had been throughout his reign. Henry VII never rested easy for his 24-year reign. He was always faced with issues. It wouldn't have done his descendants any good for people to be reminded that Tudors had always existed on a you know on an unstable base. They had to be they have to be shown that the first Tudor king had come to the throne and overnight everything was politically sound. So I think that's how this has come down through the ages. I mean we also have to um credit a lot of this to do with previous generations of historians. You know, history is always being reinterpreted and rewritten um, as we assess new sources and we reassess things through our own through our own vision. And I think perhaps previous generations such as the Victorians, the Whig historians, they have sought to paint Henry Tudor as this immediate restorer of sanity to England in 1485 and we know and as my book will show that was not the case at all that was nathan amin his latest book henry the seventh and the tudor pretenders simnel warbeck and warwick is published by amberley publishing and is out now you can find a link in the episode description of this podcast and for more on Henry VII, the challenges to his crown and the Princes in the Tower podcast series that was mentioned, visit historyextra.com. Nathan also wrote a feature for BBC History magazine on this topic. That's in the May issue, which is on sale now, and also includes pieces on the Peasants' Revolt, Napoleon and the history of slimming clubs. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Linda Colley will be speaking about constitutions in global history. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.